I'd like to thank our partners from the Robert J. Dole Institute of Politics at the University of Kansas for sharing the exhibition with us and the generosity of Harlan and Alice Ann Oates of Colorado Springs, who in honor of Larry Oates, generously supported the development of the exhibit. And closer to home, I'd like to thank the members of the Virginia Historical Society's 1831 Society whose generosity and continued support allows us to offer programs and exhibitions like League of Wives to the public. So tonight's panel discussion offers us a unique opportunity to understand the efforts of the National League by women who led it and how they and their allies captured national attention and united a deeply divided country behind bringing our prisoners home and by demanding an accounting for American servicemen missing in action. To begin the program, I'd like to introduce uh, Audrey Coleman, who will be leading tonight's <coughs> discussion. Audrey is the senior archivist of the Robert and Elizabeth Dole Archive and Special Collections and an assistant director of the Dole Institute of Politics. She be, uh, has been a pleasure to work with throughout the, I think, two-year process of bringing this exhibition here and was instrumental in coordinating the exhibit and its arrival in Richmond. Audrey is a lecturer in both uh, the Kansas University Undergraduate Honors Program and the Kansas University Osher Lifelong Learning Institute. She's a member of the Kansas Historical Records Advisory Board, Kansas University Max Cade Center Advisory Board, Humanities Kansas Speakers Bureau, and currently serves as the president of the Lawrence, Kansas Central Rotary Club. So please give a warm welcome to Audrey, who will introduce our Thank you, Andy, for that warm welcome and uh, such a humbling experience to be with you all this evening, uh, celebrating the extraordinary leadership of the women of the National League. Uh, I do have a message from Senator Dole, uh, he sent from DC, that I'd like to read to you uh, before we get started. Um, he says, I'm pleased to know that the League of Wives exhibit is traveling to the Virginia Museum of History and Culture after successful runs at the Dole Institute of Politics at the University of Kansas and the Colorado Springs Pioneers Museum. This powerful exhibit simply would not be possible without the generosity and vision of Harlan and Alice Ann Oaks of Colorado Springs dear friends of mine for many decades. I thank them for their tremendous support in making this endeavor a reality, particularly in light of the key role of Harlan's late brother, Larry. In the midst of the turbulent years of the Vietnam era, the League was a remarkable and fearless group of women with a fundamental and very important purpose, demanding action by the US government and raising awareness among the American people about their prisoner of war and missing in action husbands ultimately seeking the return of and accounting for these brave men, one of whom, POW Paul Bellotti, is in attendance today. Having worked with these determined wives while I was in Congress, I know firsthand that their sincerity was real and their struggles were deeply personal. I am proud to have been associated with them during a very tense and uncertain period in American history when their plight was often overlooked. To me, these wives really embodied the American spirit. They truly believed in their cause, they remained undaunted by the uphill battle they faced, and most importantly, they never gave up hope. They became international leaders in diplomacy, taking their cause from their own living rooms to the world stage. 
They were mavericks of their era, and I'm pleased that their story is being shared so effectively through this exhibit. I also want to recognize several other hardworking, determined women who have brought this League of Wives exhibit to life. Curator and author Heath Hardage Lee uh, and assistant director Audrey Coleman. Um, these two women have put tremendous effort into this project from its inception. Special thanks to Sherry Hamilton of the Dole Institute who took the initiative to develop this extraordinary opportunity for Harlan and Alice Ann. I want to also thank Andy Talkoff, Vice President of the Virginia Museum of History and Culture and his team for doing such a wonderful job of developing their version of the exhibit. Finally, I believe it's important to acknowledge the real heroes of this project, those who were at the League of Wives. The late Sybil Stockdale, founder of the National League, the late Phyllis Galanti, the late Jane Denton, and several wives here today, including Andrea Randerin and Marty Halliburton. Today we honor them all, women of firm resolve who never ever gave up. It is my hope that the younger generations of Americans will learn from this exhibit and from Heath's inspiring book, and that courage, perseverance, and a shared belief in the value of each human life, great things can be accomplished. Thank you one, to everyone gathered today, and I hope you enjoyed the discussion and exhibit. And Senator Dole. Uh, now it's my pleasure to do a brief introduction of our panelists. Uh, Heath Hardage Lee is the curator of the League of Wives exhibit, which debuted at the Dole Institute in 2017. It's based on the research she conducted for her forthcoming book, The Highly Anticipated League of Wives, The Untold Story of the Women Who Took on the US Government to Bring Their Husbands Home from Vietnam, which is coming out next month. Andrea Rander was a founding board member of the National League of Families, twice traveling to Paris to meet with the North Vietnamese. Her late husband, the late Don, her, her late husband, Don Rander, Sergeant and Army First Class, was taken prisoner in 1968 and not released until 1973. Marty Halliburton was a Southeast Regional Coordinator for the National League of Families and National League board member. Her husband, Naval Officer Porter Halliburton, was lost in 1965 and released in 1973. Before we hear from Ms. Rander and Ms. Halliburton, I'll ask Heath to take a moment to give us some historical context before our conversation. So, a little context to get us started. The Navy wife, the Army wife, the Air Force wife, the Marine Wife. These protocol guides for new military wives were written first during the World War II era and were printed and reprinted for years after. Even in 1965, most new military wives read these protocol guides avidly. They contained solid practical advice about military moves, deployments, and how to set up a new household. But when American servicemen went missing in the Vietnamese jungles, or they were imprisoned in the Hanoi Hilton, there was nothing in the index for wives about what to do next or how to handle such tragic events. Prisoner of war and missing in action wives were told by President Lyndon B. Johnson's administration to keep quiet, to say nothing about their husband's predicament to anyone but their immediate family. This silence was imposed on the women for years. It was not until 1968 when Sybil Stockdale, a POW wife from Coronado, California, finally went public in the San Diego Union newspaper about the situation that anyone knew everyone's predicament in Vietnam. 
Louise Mulligan was the first POW wife to go public on the East Coast in Virginia Beach. These brave wives were joined by many others, like Andrea Rander and Marty Halliburton, both here tonight, to form the National League of Families of Prisoners and Missing in Southeast Asia under the leadership of Sybil Stockdale. Many more women in Virginia Beach, like Jane Denton, our own Richmonder, Phyllis Galanti, and others would become key figures in the leadership of the League. Under President Richard Nixon, these women were finally given full reign to go public, not only about their husband's whereabouts, but also about the torture of American POWs like Jim Stockdale, Jerry Denton, and Paul Galanti. The LBJ government deliberately covered up the issue for years for fear it would derail negotiations with the North Vietnamese. As Senator John McCain confirmed with me in an interview in 2016, keeping quiet on torture was the wrong call. These brave women knew all along that keep quiet was killing their men. They finally threw out the Navy wife, the Army wife, the Marine wife, and the Air Force wife <coughs> protocol guides. They replaced these outdated manuals with public speeches, media interviews, savvy public relations, and letter writing campaigns like Bring Paul Galanti Home. These brave women decided it was time to break the rules they had obeyed for so long without results and create their own protocols. Going public was the key that eventually unlocked the Hanoi Hilton and brought some accounting of the missing in action. This exhibit and my upcoming book are tributes to these outstanding women, their courage in the face of opposition, not only from the North Vietnamese, but from their own government. When the POWs returned home in 1973, President Richard Nixon and First Lady Pat Nixon hosted the largest dinner party of all time on the White House lawn. President Nixon chose to, gave his chose to give his official toast that evening, not to the returned prisoners, but instead to the wives and girlfriends who had worked so long and so hard to bring the men home. He saluted them with this toast, which I will also try to honor Andrea and Marty with tonight. To the First Ladies of America, the First Ladies.
My husband, Porter Halliburton, was shot down flying an F-4B over uh, North Vietnam. There were no parachutes sighted, no radio when he landed on the ground. The plane was seen to crash and explode into a mountain. And he and Stan Olmstead, the pilot in the plane, were both declared killed in action. Um, a funeral service was said, was held. There was no body recovered uh, because helicopters never were able to get that deep in Vietnam. It was only about 40 miles north of Hanoi. And um, a year and a half later, I received a knock on my door and there were six American officials, someone from the White House, State Department, Department of the Navy, a new casualty assistance officer being assigned to me, a, a physician, and they said, we've got some news for you. And I had never doubted that Porter had not been killed. I had met people who'd seen the plane explode, and they tell me that I put my hand on one of the men's shoulder and said, I know you've come to tell me my husband's alive. It was probably another um, two years before one of the early release POWs came home and he had um, Porter's name. And he said, yes, Porter is a confirmed POW. The Vietnamese had never really had the decency to let most, the majority of wives know whether they held their husbands or not. In hindsight, we know your husbands were in prison for many, many years, but as you were living through this, I mean, how, how long did it take you to realize that this is like a semi-permanent condition or, you know, how, how long did it take you to do that? And did you find others to, to talk to about this? In my case, it was very unusual <coughs> because Don was a part of the um, military intelligence organization. And we were told, or I was told, that I couldn't say anything about him or if I had any calls from people that I did not recognize, uh, the press or anyone, that I was not allowed to open my mouth. The most I could say was name, rank, and serial number. Those were my instructions. So it was very difficult for me to relate to anybody about my situation. And of course, my girls were really little children at the time. So the neighbors found out, and I had that kind of support. But at the same time, going through the initial stage of not having my husband there and knowing that he was missing in action until I found out that he was a, a prisoner of war. And it was quite by accident that happened. There was a, one of the um, people that he was living with, they all, this military intelligence group lived in a house together. There were five of them. And three were killed, one escaped, and Don was taken prisoner. The one who escaped was the one, that's how I, I learned about my husband. And that's when all the problems began because I had no word from him and I didn't know if I ever would. And the last I heard from Don was um, three days before he was captured because there was a lot of insurgency that was going on 
in vietnam and particularly in the area where he was because the tet offensive was going on and so he called to say first thing he asked about with the children and how are you and i said i'm okay how are you and he says oh don't worry about me i'm fine <laughs> so don't worry about me i'll i'll see you soon because I'm going to get leave time and we're going to go on the honeymoon that we never took and I'll meet you in Hawaii. <laughs> and then that was the last I heard from him. That was the shock. Um, when I learned that my husband had been killed, I must say I had I convinced myself that death was really better than being a prisoner of war. And so I have to admit, when I first learned he was a prisoner of war, uh, what ensued was a pretty tough time for me for a few months. But very luckily, this was in February 1967, I, one of these six men gave me Sybil Scottdale's telephone number. He gave me the telephone number of uh, Jane Denton, and on the East Coast, and within a week, I was visiting with Jane Denton. I was on the telephone with Sybil Stockdale. I had a family of other POW wives who were in my same situation. And I must say, it was not just a comfort, it was a lifesaver for me. Mm -hmm. Andrea, how did you get connected with the women who are, what found the League of Wives along with you? Well, as I said, with this name, rank, and serial number, and I was in an isolated situation living in uh, outside of Baltimore, Maryland, and there were no other wives in the area. Um, <coughs> and so I was alone, basically. And there was no one that I could talk to until the call came to join the group of women who would go to Paris. And that was really the beginning of my POW wifely ex experiences. <laughs> <laughs> the trip to Paris. <laughs> started with off with a bang. <laughs> <laughs> we had Sybil. <laughs> Talk about that trip to Paris. When, when, what and year was that? What happened? That was in 69. And I thought, well, I guess I'm, I really should do this, even though don't say anything about your husband. And then Sybil said to me, when we finally met each other, and she said, listen, don't worry about anything. I've got everything under control. <laughs> you are in my power now. <laughs> <laughs> and she, we had to choose uh, roommates. And uh, Sybil said, do you want to stay with me, or do you want to stay with um, Candy Parish, or who would you like? She said, never mind. You're getting a room all to yourself. <laughs> <laughs> I just... It was a delight to be with Sybil in the time that we spent, that mm -hmm. those five short days that we, there, we were there waiting and hoping that we would hear, hear news and uh, be allowed to meet with the um, delegation that we were going to visit. And um, it, it finally happened. So Sybil had me to write out exactly what my husband looked like, sounded like, what he might be wearing, what was the color of his eyes, and his hair and all of this. And Heath gave me a copy of this letter that I'd forgotten that I had written. 
but it was she she thought that maybe the Vietnamese would not understand this was a black American and what would his features and what he what would he look like and she wanted to be ensured <coughs> that they would know if they were going to get him out and exactly is what I thought when I took this trip I said when we get home, don't worry, Sybil, those guys are going to be released immediately because we are here. <laughs> <laughs> I thought. <laughs> wrong. <laughs> Marty, did you do any traveling with the League, or what was your primary role? What was a day um, in the life if there could have been something so, probably no typical day, right? Not a typical day. <laughs> um, while I was on the board, I traveled to Washington every three weeks. Um, but I had, um, my daughter was five days old when Porter left, and I have no family, no brothers and sisters, no parents, and my husband was also an only child with no family. So we were literally kind of orphaned. And um, I, I think my first trip was uh, to give a talk with Ross Perot. He mm -hmm. called and asked me if I would join his um, kind of little programs that he was doing throughout the country. And I went with him twice, and on each occasion he would call me, or he would have his staff call me and tell me there would be a plane that was going to meet me in about three hours. And I, I couldn't do that. And so, actually, Ross Perot and I ended up a little bit on odd terms. I don't think he had ever had anyone tell him no. <laughs> so maybe that was my claim to fame. Because when I would see him later, he would say, you're the no girl. <laughs> hey, would you tell us a little bit more about Ross Perot and his involvement, just for some context, yes, just and briefly? I, I would love to interject on this, because I've talked to Andre about this also. Because, you know, there were lots of well-intentioned men that were trying to help, but they forgot about And things that I had to say, and again, 
in my mind was name, rank, and serial number. Do not discuss your husband's activities or what he has been assigned to do, the military intelligence. So for so long, it was very hard to um, talk to people about anything, but when I, when I did, I had to really react and, and be calm and clear about what we were going through, the wives. <coughs> right around to the fact that here we are, we don't have our husbands, <coughs> all of this that we're doing is being done on our own, and we are trying to communicate with each other when we get the opportunity and know that we can try and do some good in bringing our men home. But those that were not any help opposed the war and opposed us being invited to discuss anything to do with the war. Um, I would like to say the U.S. Navy, which was my huge support, and all of the people that I worked with, they were there literally 24-7. I think probably for months, um, one of the six men that came to my house called me every single day, and finally I kept saying, you know, I really am okay. And um, he, he became like a father that I didn't have. He gave me such um, good advice. I was living in Atlanta, and there were not a lot of, there certainly was no military. Well, there was, there was some kind of army base and a, um, I think a reserve air force. But I certainly wasn't surrounded by military people, and I considered moving to Virginia Beach, where there were many Navy wives and many of my uh, POW wives and my friends. And he kept saying, you know, you're really better off where you are because you can lead a normal life and have a normal life with your daughter. Um, they have a very hard time getting away from this. They're with this 24-7. Because just when one of them is kind of getting involved in something else, somebody else is having a really hard time. And so then they all are together for that one person. Andrea, the exhibit features, and, and some folks might have seen this, a, a photo of some of the wives with President Nixon there standing in the middle, and you're just right to his side. Would you describe that moment, what was going on in that image, and what it felt like for you, and what you would say to us about? Well, some of this you may want to hear, maybe some not. <laughs> <laughs> so it makes it interesting. <laughs> can't please everyone. <laughs> standing here with you. Somebody has got to listen and maybe you will and that's looking up at him thinking this has got to work. I mean we've been to Paris now we've tried to work out things with the delegation there and they weren't too happy except we had plenty of tea. <laughs> <laughs> and it, we were, I was just thinking to myself why am I here? Is this really going to do any good? And I wasn't thinking that I'm standing next to the president, but I'm standing next to the president of the United States. And I hope he hears what we have to say. And this is not just 
for PR purposes at the time. But it helped. <laughs> I might interject that you know LBJ, as I've talked about in context setting, would not even meet with the wives. So Nixon had his flaws, certainly. Watergate was a little problem. However, <laughs> this is pretty Watergate. Um, and he seemed to really support you all, in a, and you can certainly comment on this, in a way that LBJ and McNamara, et cetera, did not. Do you think that's accurate? I think it's accurate. Certainly I think no. he finally got the point. And I don't know if it's because he was surrounded by these lovely women. It's <laughs> <was> like, <laughs> yeah, you know? <laughs> but he, he knew, I think, because there was so much other publicity before that occurred, um, that photo op, and being at the White House, I think he was starting to digest all of this information, and maybe he was going to try and do something about it. And when you think about it, reflecting, who got us home? Who got the men home? He was in that position, and that's how it happened. But I recall um, way before that when uh, Nixon was campaigning, <coughs> and he came to the neighborhood where I was living, and since I didn't go to rallies because I was not allowed to go to any of these rallies that were happening in Washington, D.C., I thought, you know what, maybe I should stretch my mind a little here and maybe go up and, and go to this rally and join the people who were rah-rah, he's, he's coming to see a little section of um, Baltimore where we were. And it turns out, when I saw him pretty much up close, I really closed my eyes and I thought, no, I don't want to see him. <laughs> I didn't want to see him. Little did I know I was going to end up seeing him at the White House. <laughs> His territory. <laughs> but I didn't want to see him then because I thought, if you're not doing anything and you haven't done it yet and you haven't done it now, why do I want to come out here and say, rah, rah, you're in our neighborhood campaigning? But as it turns out, did what he had to do. And Andrea, you told me, I have something in the book about how you said, don't forget the POWs, I and you were like, I'm sure he heard me. Right. <laughs> <laughs> I did yell that out to him. <laughs> just interrupt you just one moment. We'll have some time for questions at the end. I should have mentioned that. And we'll want to get that get you on the mic too so we can hear you. Pardon me. Um, Marty, I want to say one of the showpieces of the exhibit upstairs is a, as a, as a what have we been calling it? The chandelier. I know, it's not a chandelier. It's not a chandelier. <laughs> when we're talking about uh, other advocacy organizations, would you, would you tell us a little bit about that piece and, and what that meant to you um, and what those are? There was a student organization, I think it's out of California. I'm not sure yeah. I ever even met. Viva. 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 Mm -hmm. I never even met anyone, but they got this idea to do bracelets. I think it was the first of the bracelets. Now they're uh, rubber bracelets yeah. for every yes, cause right under now. the sun. Mm -hmm. But these were stainless steel, I think, and the bracelets had the name of a POW or MIA on them. And um, they started um, selling these, or uh, selling these bracelets. And the wives sold these bracelets, and they became hugely popular. And the hundred and some that are upstairs that have my husband's name 
were all sent to him when he came home. When he came home, he received um, over 2,000 letters from perfect strangers and over 1,200 POW bracelets with his name on them from perfect strangers. And so to me, it was the American people. Perhaps they didn't like the war in Vietnam, but I think almost everyone was united in supporting the men, the military men, who were mostly men at that time, <coughs> who were either POWs or missing in action. I wanted to ask you one question. We were hoping that Louise Mulligan should join us this evening, but she wasn't able to. Would you talk a little bit about the May Day rally in those, the early 1970s, sure. the appeal for international justice? Sure, yes. So this is kind of a flashpoint, I think, for the National League, and, and you ladies can comment. I believe, were you all there? I'm trying to remember. I don't think either of you no. all were at that. Um, 1970, May 1st, we're at Constitution Hall in D.C., um, the DAR headquarters. Oh, yes. Remember, I you, yes. I have a picture of you. Yes. <laughs> 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 Marty was there, but but it was okay. huge. I mean, there were okay. thousands yeah. of people. It's hard to remember. It was a long time ago. But um, Louise Mulligan, who we yeah we wish was had been here tonight, um, POW wife, um, really was the Virginia Beach area coordinator for a number of years. Um, she gave this speech where she got up, this was all the POWMI families, it was kind of like a coming out party for the National League. It was about to be established. Um, about this hundreds of people were at Constitution Hall and she gets up to give a speech and yells, May Day, May Day. You know, and everyone's like, oh my gosh, what's going on? I'm sure you remember, it, it seemed like it was a very visceral reaction Mayday comes from the French, by the way, Mayday, help me, it's the pilot's call for distress. So she said this, and everybody's like, oh my God, and it kind of, everything starts to click then. It's really, I always talk about her, it's like the Joan of Arc of the POW-MIA movement. She's a galvanizing figure, and it gives a voice to people like Andrea and Marty who were told to keep quiet, name, rank, and serial number. And this is when the barrier breaks. She kind of breaks the sound barrier, and everybody goes public. Um, she was the first woman to go public on the East Coast. Sybil was the first of everyone on the West Coast. So I think it's, it's a moment in time where everybody is united, and everybody is ready to talk. Mm -hmm. That's the way I saw it. And of course, Marty was an eyewitness, so she may have anything else to add or I just remember Senator Dole. <laughs> yes, because he he sort of um, made that hall available and did helped us with uh, many of those arrangements. His name was on the con we found the old contract. Were you with me, Andre? Yeah, I think so. I think you were with me. Mm -hmm. He had signed the contract for that, and he was kind of like the grand marshal. Yes, or, you know, master of ceremonies. That's the word, yeah. master of ceremonies. He was intensely involved with these women when nobody else would help. He was one of the few. He had Ross Perot being another one that helped. So. And he also told us of people, he made a lot of wonderful suggestions of people on Capitol Hill who might we might not think would be important to talk to because he had, um, he, he knew what was going on up there and he wasn't afraid to sort of tell us quietly, who we might want to try to get an appointment with. Mm -hmm. 
Well, I have a few more questions, but I want to make sure we get questions from the audience. So I think I'll turn it over to the folks. Uh, and ma'am, if you would like to start. I think Andy's got a yeah, mic for you, if you wouldn't mind speaking into the mic. Well, first of all, I want to answer my question. I was going to ask of you is, uh, if by 1975, <coughs> what was the support of the general public for the Vietnam War? Well, what was it? Yes, 72. So no one was, the, right, the general yeah. public, I mean, of course, was not on board with this. But I liked what Marty said, too, about the one thing we were united on was the POW-MIA effort. That was the, the, you know, the uniting theme that was there. But the war, excuse me? The public was united in their effort. Yes, yeah. yes, and they were nonpartisan too, and I think yes. that's what made them successful right. is they were not taking sides, and that was the key, I think, right. to the National League's yes. success. Mm -hmm. So, right. I think sort of one thing towards the end, um, the first POW was taken in 1964, mm -hmm. and uh, Edward Alvarez, mm -hmm. and by the election in uh, 1970. Um, 70, uh, with McGovern and um, 72. 72 right. The families were getting, we were weary. We also thought, if we are weary, what is the situation with these men who we knew were being tortured, were not getting enough to eat, um, were under, being held under terribly adverse circumstances? And I think for the first time, some of our members did become a little bit political. And um, in fact, one of the POW wives seconded George McGovern's um, yes, nomination. Stumped for him, yeah. And, um, well, she seconded it on national yes, television. Yes, right. <laughs> As she was. Mm -hmm, and, and there were other people who supported that. And I think we all, at that election, kind of began to take sides. My personal feeling was McGovern said he was going to end the Vietnam War. It didn't, he, POWs and MIAs were not an issue. And so I felt my husband would never come home. And um, so to me, um, I owe my husband's life to the administration of Richard Nixon. <coughs> on the board because he was the one who was negotiating in Paris. And um, as Andrew said, when we would go to those meetings at the White House, um, I don't think the administration looked forward to them. many of the questions that they could not answer for um, security reasons. And, um, but they always met with us. 
and it, they didn't take the Fifth Amendment. Uh, but, I mean, there were things, they would talk around some things. They could not be as specific as we would have wanted them to be. And they couldn't, it wasn't in their power, actually, to do what we wanted them to do, was bring our people home the next day. But um, I, I felt that um, Kissinger was really supportive. Pretty much all the wives I interviewed felt that way. You know, they, um, Sybil Stockdale had a great encounter that I talk about in the book where um, Kissinger could not come, and I believe maybe Andrea was there that day when Kissinger could not come. He had to go to a, a funeral, and uh, he sent Alexander Haig, and Sybil was like, what are you doing? <laughs> I'm going to kill you. When are we going to see Dr. Kissinger? And he was so nervous, he worked a hole in his pocket and all the change, change. fell out. <laughs> so he, she was like, oh my God. And then Dr. Kissinger said, what have you done to Dr. Alexander? He, he's terrified of you. So yes, when the wives came, they ran, which was good. Well, we knew he was always nervous because Alexander Haig, you could... That was his little habit, fooling with, with the change, the change. <laughs> the change <laughs> in his pockets. And so it was sort of a joke. That's how, You could have your eyes closed and you, you knew where it was. was. <laughs> <laughs> oh, we have another one down here. I never have been um, assured one way or the other, and it's been bothering me for a long time. Didn't you always feel that your any action you take as a group or as an individual would increase the torture on your husband? And how <coughs> did you deal with this la lutte, en français, uh, the struggle? Mm -hmm. The struggle between I'm speaking up, my heart is breaking, I miss my husband, and yet because I, I can't control my emotions anymore, I must speak up. I know at the same time they will double the, in, the horrible torture to my son, husband. The opposite was actually yeah, true. true. You want to talk about that? Yeah. Well, we, we had a fear, and I go right back to this military intelligence situation, and that was my fear. But, you know, sometimes you overcome fear when you are desperate. And I don't want to say we were desperate housewives, but we were desperate. <laughs> <laughs> That's
the struggle was that was you you could felt like I can't say anything it could kill them that's the right. torture could be worse I think that's very logical to think yeah. that mm -hmm. but the opposite was true when they went public that's when John McCain told me immediately it yeah, got, it's got better. better the torture better. stopped things right. got better because it embarrassed the North Vietnamese in the court of public opinion world opinion right. so it it actually helped a lot but still the worry remained with us because I never heard from my John in all the five and a half years that he was away. Uh, many of the wives were getting letters, but I heard nothing. And so I was, you know, it was really difficult for me um, not getting any word. But the military, after a while, tried to keep up, and they, they brought us into a meeting where um, they set out a, a series of photos and the little desperation set in again because I saw a picture of one of these POWs. See, now they were getting more information. And I saw this picture and I said, it's him. That's my husband. And they said, are you sure? This is at this table. They said, are you sure? And I looked again and I thought, it really isn't, but you want I want it to be. <laughs> it's not my dawn. So that was a very difficult afternoon. One question back here. What a, a marvelous opportunity you've provided all of us to sort of share some of your thoughts and certainly your challenges during this period as wives of servicemen missing. Can you talk for just a minute, though, about your immediate duty, that of being the best mom that you could be because you, you had children and Daddy wasn't coming home at the end of his... Uh, his tour after a year. And what did you tell your children? Um, I felt I was very fortunate because my daughter was five days old. And so she was too young. She grew up um, knowing her dad was a POW. And um, an interesting thing happened. Uh, I was living in Atlanta, Georgia, where there are very few military people. She entered a, one of these really large, at the time, Baptist kindergartens, and um, they went around. I was the only single mom in the whole kindergarten of something like 300 kids. And um, they asked all the children, you know, talked about what their daddy did. And Dabney told them that her dad was a POW. A I think maybe she must have said prisoner of war. And um, so the first meeting of all the families People are kind of looking at me really strangely. And finally, one woman comes up and says, um, what exactly did your husband do to end up in the federal pen here? <laughs> <laughs> and I was so happy to say, he's a prisoner of war in North Carolina. That's the one and only time. wondering how many um, intelligence personnel were involved in the captures uh, over all of the military. Do you have any idea? There were probably quite a few, and I know in that area where Don was, um, and he was actually, I don't know if you know this, he was actually captured in South Vietnam. He wasn't in the north, but he was transported by foot 
spent most of the trip into the north, up the hills, um, maybe in a wagon. But there were several that were working with the South Vietnamese soldiers there. And that's how his operative went. And he actually, uh, when he was captured and when he finally got to Hanoi, to the Hilton, they thought he was CIA. And so they started asking him all different sorts of questions. And some of his answers were really strange. They said, well, who do you work for? And, and who is your boss in the CIA? They just insisted he was CIA, although he was imprisoned at one point. You know, they were changing um, prisoners in different, um, different um, cells for a while. And he ended up with uh, Phil Manhart, who was actually um, not CIA, CIA, or he was CIA, who, who later became an ambassador. Well, they asked my Don, <laughs> who do you work for? And, and why are you here? And you're a CIA and you're an agent. And he said, my supervisor's name is Jackie Robinson. <laughs> <laughs> they didn't know. <laughs> admitted he had somebody that he was working for in the CIA by the name of Jackie Robinson. Before we maybe go to the last question, I want to make sure we talk about uh, your reunion. And how could you comment on that? What was it like? Both of you were, uh, were fortunate enough to have your husbands return home. And then Pete, can you tell us a little bit about the MIA wives and afterwards? So it was quite a reunion. Yeah. Um, Don came in through Hawaii. He actually came off of the last plane with the last prisoners of war. And I really shouldn't have said what I said because sometimes you put things out there and I said, he'll probably be the last one off the last plane. That was not good. <laughs> so he came in on the last plane out of Hanoi and landed in um, Hawaii and at which time he was trying to fatten himself up so he could see me a little bit bigger than he was. He left, he was about 160, and he came home and he was like 138, so he'd lost a lot of weight. So they were trying to get fattened up while they were in Hawaii. So from Hawaii, Hawaii we actually met at um, Valley Forge Military Hospital, which was open at the time. It's closed now, and that's where we stayed for almost a month while he was in rehab there call it rehab now. <laughs> and so, but that first meeting with him, and it's so interesting, one of the girls brought some pictures tonight that I forgot, but she had all the pictures that were given to us of our meeting at Valley Forge. And one of those pictures um, was highlighted in newspapers across the country, because I guess maybe it was such an endearing photo uh, in our meeting, and it was really scary in a sense because I didn't know what to expect, um, not having been with my husband in, in five and a half years, um, how is he going to react to me and how am I going to react to him? And so the love that was included and, and involved really came out. 
and we got to know each other a little while, a little better in that close space of time where, when we were at Valley Forge, but the aftermath had not set in. And so those four weeks there were really wonderful and loving, and um, we really talked more about the children. I don't know if you know that, girls. <laughs> what are they doing? And, how are they? And then, of course, they got to see him also <coughs> in the reunion. Um, but it was really difficult um, afterwards. But the reunion with him and reunification, as they were calling it, it was wonderful. And we were also um, asked if we wanted to meet with uh, anybody to discuss any of our situation while the men were gone? Did we have anything that we wanted to say? Uh, or if there were some things that you didn't want to say to your husband, um, tell us. And so I didn't know what to say. I said, <laughs> I just lived my life the best way I could, taking care of my girls while he was away. And finding new friendships with other women, but not the <coughs> going to work again. So all of these things had to be renewed, and um, I wasn't too tolerant about a lot of it. But you know, we we managed at least in those four weeks. And then afterwards, when we got home, um, it, there was a lot of um, press on us, and we had he had to go make speeches, and I was making a couple here and there, and um, still having to worry about the children who was gonna take care of them, but we had some really good support. And I will say, in those five and a half years, I had the best parents. Mm -hmm. They were my support system, even though we were in two different cities. It's whatever you choose to do, however you handle this, this is, we are here for you. And that really makes a big deal. It really is really important when you are in a stressful situation. So, and I'm sure you had some good moments too. Would you like to talk um, about your reunion, Marty? Uh, my husband came home uh, to Jacksonville Naval Air Station and again stayed about a month. They did a lot of rebriefing. Um, they checked the men out physically to make sure that they were in good health. And then, and it was very nice there because no one knew who we were. And um, I knew when we went back to Atlanta, we would not have a private life. And we were treated and welcomed home so wonderfully. People were taking, wanted us to go on trips. We went to opening days of baseball games. Ross Perot had us all out to uh, Texas. We went to the White House. Uh, a week's cruise uh, in the Caribbean, just one thing after another. And after about two months, um, Dabney, who was eight at the time, said, some reporter asked her, what's it like to have your dad home after all these years? And she said, you know, it's really great, but I just want to be a plain little girl with a plain daddy. <laughs> and so we stopped all the traveling, my husband went to grad, went back to graduate school, and we kind of put the Vietnam War behind us for a while. <laughs>
to take my eighth trip to Vietnam next um, So it's what started out as a very negative period in my life, I know now was really meant to be because Vietnam has, I have a passion for the people of that country. And um, I am so proud of how they welcomed two leaders this week, they were the stars. The Vietnamese people and what that country, how far they have come. Keith, would you talk just briefly about the folks who didn't get their husbands back yes. and what became of the National League? Yes, I will. And I, I do have to tell one story on Paul Galanti because he's mm -hmm. right here. Mm -hmm. um, and Phyllis about their reunion, which is, I just love this story. So, you know, the Navy had scared everybody in the Army and the Marines to death about there was going to be all these problems when people came back. There was going to be sexual dysfunction. There was going to be fights and blah, blah. And they scared everyone to death. And poor Phyllis was terrified. Like, what is going to happen? And I just don't know what's going to happen. So the minute she sees Paul, she's like, it all just melted away. I mean, it was just so, her description was, it was just like a movie, it was wonderful. She said, all those fears I had, all that anger I had, it just went away. And he had, had a poem that he read to her, which he swiped from the newspaper. <laughs> I know, yeah. I know what she did. Yeah, she thought you had written it. And she was like, so he's, he's very mischievous, so it was very much of a piece. Um, so that, I had to talk a little about that reunion because I love that story. Um, in terms of the MIAs, unfortunately, you know, that's the purgatory that never goes away. It's just, you know, there isn't any accounting for so many of these men. Um, and they're in the book, I do talk a lot about two wives in particular, Helene Knapp, who's in Colorado Springs, and Kathleen Frisbee. And, in Kansas, and um, they just never get the resolution. They never get in, even any remains. There is, of course, JPEC, and now it's called, it has a different name, but the accounting agency that tries to find remains, they're still trying, they're still out there. And some of the wives have told me, like Colleen, I just want it to stop, because every time they do a new dig, there's a new way that they died. You know, it's because they don't know. And it's been so long in that dense jungle, it's just really hard to account for it. And then, um, as Helene told me, you know, after the communists took over, there was no looking for bodies. And that, unfortunately, shut down a lot of that for a long time. So, you know, that's a, a special kind of hell, I have to say. It's just never really resolved. And in terms of the National League, um, the league itself, you know, the goal was to put itself out of business, which it did with the POWs. Now it's purely about accounting for the MIAs. So it's a totally different league, and I don't really talk about in my book or in the exhibit the League of Now. The League of Now is not the league that it was um, for many different reasons. Mm -hmm. It's all about MIA accounting, and that will continue to go on. <coughs> so it was very hard for the MIA wives. They were very, so happy for their friends who they did have the husband's home, but it was also a mixture of what they had lost and the regret. It was it was difficult, very difficult mm -hmm. for them. Mm -hmm. um, so that's their scenario is not resolved. Mm -hmm. On that note, 
I'm sorry to say we're out of time, but thank you so much, Marty and Andrea, for sharing your experience and your stories, and we're so honored to be with you this evening. And Heath, congratulations on your book. Thank you. Can't wait to read it next month. Thank you. Thank you all for being with us this evening. <laughs>